So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are very lucky to be joined by Rick Roden, who's an adjunct professor, uh, actually adjunct professorial lecturer in the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. So welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about the, the death, the, the possibly exaggerated death of the Washington Consensus. So let's begin with uh, a rundown of what the Washington Consensus is, and I'm interested in, in why it's called the Washington Consensus. Why, why not the Paris Consensus? Oh, well, that's a very good question. These were a set of economic policies, really like economic policy reforms uh, that were primarily intended for developing countries that became very popular in the 1980s. And the reason why they were known as the Washington Consensus is because because of the two major international economic institutions of the world, especially the ones that deal with developing countries, are located in Washington, D.C. That's the World Bank and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And those are both have their headquarters in Washington, D.C. since they were created back in the 1940s at the end of World War II. And the U.S., you know, a, a lot of countries have a seat at the table inside those institutions on the executive board, but the U.S. government has the biggest say they put in the most money and they have the most voting rights when it comes to making decisions on the executive boards of the institutions. So the U.S. Treasury Department, our finance ministry, has the uh, most, they, they send their instructions to the person who sits for the United States inside the IMF and the World Bank. So the U.S. Treasury Department has a huge amount of say over what happens at those institutions. So because all three, the IMF, the World Bank, and of course the U.S. Treasury Department are all located in Washington, there was sort of a consensus, uh, sort of a political consensus achieved about best practices, if you will, or, or, or in the 1980s at the time of the Reagan administration. And um, the term was actually coined by an economist, John Williamson, I think in the early 1990s, but he was talking about uh, the consensus, the sort of political consensus about economics that had been uh, arrived at in the 1980s. So that's why they call it the Washington Consensus. Okay, and then broadly speaking, what are those, in quotes, uh, best practices? Well, there, you know, there's a famous list of 10, but, you know, there's like, you know, there's like eight or 12, depending on how you count them and, and stuff. So it's about a set, basically about a set of 10 key policy recommendations for making reforms to economies uh, for developing countries. So in the 1970s, at the end of the 1970s and going into the 1980s, many developing countries were facing a lot of economic trouble. There was a lot of economic crisis in developing countries. Partially, this was this started with the OPEC crisis in the 1970s. That's when the oil producing countries created a cartel and raised the price on oil. So that was great for some developing countries who were selling oil, uh, but it was really bad for a lot of other developing countries who need to import their oil. So that's one thing that really started plunging them into crisis in the 70s and going into the 80s. And then there was also two global recessions, one at the end of the 1970s and one at the beginning of the 1980s. And what always happens when you have a global economic slowdown in the global economy, a, a global recession, is that the rich countries buy less stuff you know, from the developing countries. So suddenly the developing countries were, weren't able to export as much stuff as they were planning on or what they thought that they would be able to. So they weren't selling enough stuff and they weren't raising enough foreign exchange from their, from their exports to the rich countries. So that plunged them deeper into economic problems. So all these things sort of came to a head in the, 
in the 1980s and developing countries began to suffer what they call the third world debt crisis in the 1980s. And they were just deeply into debt, paying more on their interest than they were even spending on health or education. So something had to be done. The debts all had to be restructured. New loans had to be forthcoming. But this happened also at, a, at another important time in the 1980s when free market economics was coming into its ascendancy, like politically speaking. The champions of free markets had always been there in the 20th century, but they had been mostly marginalized on the sidelines for most of the 20th century until uh, President Ronald Reagan in the U.S. and um, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the U.K., they suddenly made free market economics much more popular in the 1980s. And so they changed, they, they had a huge influence on what the IMF and the World Bank were doing in developing countries. They really changed a lot of the economists and the way that the institutions were thinking about things in the 1980s and really changed uh, where it really came to really be seen most forcefully is when the IMF and the World Bank give foreign aid to developing countries, it usually comes along with strings attached, meaning they have to do some policy changes as loan conditions, as conditions to get the foreign aid. And uh, so it's those policy conditions that we refer to as the Washington Consensus. And so um, they did a number of things. Primarily, they called on developing countries to lower their trade barriers, to lower the tariffs and, and eliminate the quotas on imports. And ostensibly, that's supposed to make the goods cheaper for people uh, who are buying them inside the developing countries, which is true. But it also hurts the ability of the developing country to produce their own things. So if you're getting too many cheaper goods coming in from the outside, more people in your country will buy the cheaper imports than they will buying the domestically produced things. And so that's why all the countries who industrialize successfully, they sort of learned through trial and error to keep your tariffs high when you're first building up your domestic industries so that it makes the imported goods more expensive relative to your domestically produced goods. So you want more people to buy the domestically produced goods, especially when you're first building up those domestic industries. And that's the way the rich countries had always done it previously. But in the 1980s, the new loan conditions, you know, compelled developing countries to lower their trade barriers, which was great for customers who wanted to buy cheaper imports, but it was bad for efforts to build up the domestic companies, especially the domestic manufacturing companies. So this was one of the really controversial aspects of the Washington Consensus, but, you know, there were many more. Okay, and this is a, a question that I, I think about a lot, but how does, how does consensus, how is it made? How does it become formed? How does a state or states, how do they construct he hegemony of ideas? How is it that those ideas start to dominate, not just the treasury, but these institutions and, and also um, the universities? Well, that's a very good question, and that's a very important question. There's been some really good historical work on this exact question. The interesting thing is that, like I said, the free market people, the champions of free markets had always been there in the 20th century, but they have been really marginalized uh, for most of the 20th century, from at least since World War I and, and, and then definitely since the Depression in 1929, all through the 30s and 40s. It was Keynesian economics with a huge role for an active role for the state to engage in fiscal policy and monetary policy and employment policy and social spending and all this. That was really the dominant thinking for most of the 20th century. So while the free market guys were on the sidelines in like, especially like in the forties, fifties and sixties, they um, really invested smartly in propagating their ideas. They really got 
they, they use their money well to invest in um, think tanks, uh, university departments. They would endow certain chairs at different university departments. They would fund magazines, fund academic journals, fund newsletters, fund you know think tanks who would produce these things, publish books, all kinds of things. They did in a very systematic way, in a very consistent way, all through the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then in the 1970s, like I said, when we had two global economic recessions, one in the late 70s, one in the early 80s, it really made it look like the Keynesian approach to economic policy wasn't working. You had um, high prices, high inflation. There was a, a lot of problems going on in the global economy. So the free market people sort of seized on those economic troubles to say, look, uh, having a big role for the state in the economy is bad and wrong. And what you need to do is have less government spending, less government policies regulating what to do in the economy. Just get the government out of everything, roll back the role of the state in the economy. And this became the dominant prevailing logic by the 1980s. But it was only through lots of consistent hard work that those guys were really out there propagating their ideas day in and day out, year in and year out, while they were on, marginalized on the sidelines, like I said, during the 50s and 60s and 70s. And then finally, you know, when they had the chance, their champions came to power. Like I said, Ronald Reagan in the United States, Margaret Thatcher in the UK. And then when they got into power, it, was, it became just sort of a sea change. There was a huge shift in the consensus in favor of free markets. And there was a sort of antipathy that developed towards the state or the, the idea of the role of the state you know, intervening in the economy. This may be something different, and you can correct me, please, if I'm wrong. When I'm teaching my students about neoliberalism, which I think emerges at the same time, and, and obviously, yes, yes. You know, I, I talk about the role rollback of the state and the reduced role of the state, but that doesn't increasingly, the more I learn, that doesn't feel accurate it, because it feels like the state is very active. It's just active on behalf of, of capital. Would that's you say true. That's that correct. That's, that's, a, that, that's a more nuanced reading of the issue. That is true. There are things there are things that the neoliberal reforms would still have the state be doing, but it's just much more in the service of private capital. That, that's actually essentially correct. But I guess what, what my point really is, is that the state used to do, and not just, and not just in the United States, but it, for, for countries around the world, and especially countries who needed to develop and build up their manufacturing over time, the state did a lot of proactive things that were, that were positive for economic development over time. There were trade policies, there were industrial policies, fiscal and monetary policies, financial policies that all were targeted and geared towards building up the domestic manufacturing sector over time. And the reason why that's important is because the manufacturing sector pays higher wages. So if you go to a developing country where they have a huge agricultural sector, primary agricultural commodities are the only thing they export. They have a lot of people in poverty. People are, most people are in the countryside engaged in agriculture and they have a very small little uh, manufacturing sector. Most people are gonna still be poor. But all countries sort of started out like that. The rich countries just got rich by, moved by building up their manufacturing sectors over time. And so governments used to do all kinds of proactive policies that would lead towards those types of outcomes, developmental outcomes. And that's what neoliberalism or the Washington Consensus has sort of dismantled, those types of proactive government policies. And so that's what I really was sort of getting at when I say that they wanted to roll back the role of the state in the economy. Mm -hmm.
Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I learned that the, the UK develops because they have high tariffs on textiles. The United States develops. They have high tariffs on textiles and later on steel. And then, you know, you look at, at the rise of, of China and the rise of East Asia in the 90s and 2000s. And that's also state-directed capitalism. So it was industrial policy, yeah. Industrial policy, right. So why, and I really am asking this in a serious way, I'm not being rhetorical about it. How does the IMF have any legitimacy if you know what happened historically here and in the UK, or if you're just paying attention to East Asia? Well, it's a great question. It's a great question. How do people know what they know and why don't they know other things? It's like epistemology, right? It's an epistemological question. Um, And this is a huge problem. It it really has to do with like learning and unlearning the history and learning and unlearning best practices over time. Uh, There's a great economic historian, a Norwegian guy named Eric Reinert, uh, E-R-I-K-R-E-I-N-E-R-T. And he's a fantastic economic historian and talks about this quite a bit. But like, you've always had these competing schools of thought going back like 300 years, maybe even more, like maybe even more than 400 years. He really goes into the history quite a bit. But there's these two competing schools of thought, the free market people, and then the what you would call maybe more of like the people who say there is an important role for the state in economic development. So you have these two competing schools of thought, and they come in and out of fashion every few decades. So just like clothes and have different styles that come in and out of fashion over time, economic policies and which ones are popular also come in and out of fashion over the decades. So there's different times when one school of thought is in the political ascendancy, like we're in right now with free markets. And then there's other times like in the 1940s and 50s where Keynesian economics and a huge role for the state in the economy was the popular thing. And these things shift back and forth going back 400 years, you can see. 30 or 40 years where one is dominant, then 30 or 40 years where another is dominant, back and forth, back and forth. And it's also not you know, pervasive all over the world. So like some are more popular than others at different times in different countries over time as well. So there's this sort of fluctuating, undulating uh, series of fashions where these ideas come in and out of fashion. Let's talk about 2008. There's a global financial crisis in 2008, and it, it perhaps is paradigm shifting. And you have this remarkable, you you write about it, this remarkable instance in 2016 where I think it's the IMF basically publishes a a study. They admit that the the institution you wrote for decades, the institution had been overselling the benefits of of two of its major policies on fiscal austerity during the economic slowdowns and the deregulation of financial markets. Uh, And then then you also talk about um, the former IMF managing director, Christine Lagarde, who basically says, you know, I have no idea what structural adjustments are. We don't do that anymore. So, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is amazing. Okay, yeah. wait, before, before I get to that, before I get to 2008 and what has happened Please. subsequently, let me just say one thing that I meant to, meant to say before yeah. what, related to your question, like how do we know what we know? So with yeah. Reagan and Thatcher coming to power, there was a sea change in economics and the way economics was taught at the universities, the way Economics professors were rewarded by having articles published in the right journals with the way the whole curriculum at the university level was designed and rolled out. And the the Keynesian economics and the role of the state, and particularly the history of the use of industrial policy 
in all of the successfully industrialized countries, that was all sort of taken out of the curriculum. And starting in the 1980s, and really by the 1990s or by the 2000s, you had this entire generation of young economists growing up only learning free market economics and only learning you know, neoliberalism in their economics courses. So you have this epistemological problem where you have two or three generations now of perfectly intelligent, perfectly capable, perfectly well-meaning people who go to school and study economics, but yet all they're taught is the one thing. And that history, that sort of history of like, what did countries do, according to the historical record, has been sort of lost. And it's really a tragedy and it, it creates huge problems. So like I, I've had the opportunity to talk with uh, finance ministries and uh, health and education ministries in many developing countries. And I also love to go talk to the manufacturing associations in developing countries. And I asked them about like, don't you don't you want to do the same things that the rich countries did to industrialize? Don't you want to use industrial policies to build up your manufacturing? And what are you lobbying your government for as a manufacturing association? Aren't you asking for like X, Y, and Z types of support that were used in all the industrialized countries? And they, they just don't know. They don't know that history. And they're perfectly capable, intelligent people, but they've just been like, I think, maleducated. <laughs> so there's a huge question. It's a, it's a, it's in a, it's a huge question about what is taught in the universities and what isn't being taught in the universities. And just as a quick example, there's a great uh, economist named Hyman Minsky who always tells us, you know, about he, he writes about the history of financial crises in the capitalist world going back a few hundred years. And we have these sort of boom and bust cycles where the stock market is going up and up and up and everybody thinks it will continue going up and up forever. And that this time it's different and it's going to be great. And then suddenly there's a stock market crash and everybody you know, loses their shirt and people will sober up and they're like, oh my God, we can't let the financial markets get out of control like that ever again. We need more regulation. Got to clamp down on all that speculative activity that we allowed to have happen. And so everybody goes through a generation or two of people saying we need financial regulation. But then after two generations or so, three, people start to forget like that last financial crisis. And they think, why do we need all this regulation? And then the people who championed Reagan and Thatcher said, you know, the financial sector, they're like, yeah, yeah, let's get rid of all that financial regulation. It's just handcuffing us. It's chaining us. We need to have our animal spirits, you know, freed so we can go invest in the market as we see fit. So Reagan and Thatcher said, okay, okay, we will set you free for, you know, financial investors. We will, we will deregulate the financial sector. We'll get rid of all these laws and restrictions and regulations, and you guys can run free. And so uh, then, then we had to have the 2008 financial crisis and learn all over again you know, that we have to have some regulations on what Wall Street does and what the financial sector can do with their risky over leveraging and their crazy bets and what, you know, the types of over leverage that they were engaging in. And they're still engaging in, by the way, in derivatives markets on Wall Street. So, but it, it just suffice to say, not only do these ideas come and go in and out of fashion over time, where one is more popular than the other, and then it changes, but you also have this problem of what do people learn? What has been stripped out of the curriculum? And so therefore, what do people unlearn? And then what do they have to learn all over again the hard way? So like right now in Africa, it's very popular to say, oh, yes, every, it's very clear Africa needs to industrialize. We all know that. Everybody's saying it. Everybody admits it. Everybody knows it. But then when you say, well, how do they do it? There's a huge, people are at a huge loss. They're like, well, we've tried the free market thing and that's not working for the last few decades. So how do we industrialize? That whole rich, deep history of how you know, uh, the Europeans and the Americans and the Japanese did it. And then how the four tigers of Asia and China, how they all did it. What did they actually do? The policies they used, the industrial policy they used when they were first building up their manufacturing. That whole rich history has been forgotten and lost. 
there are great economists and historians out there who are trying to revive it and it needs to have a, like a renaissance and be brought back. But I think that answers the question of like, why, why do people like continue to pursue the free market thing? It's because they haven't learned any of the historical alter alternatives. Minsky's great. It's terrifying, right? Because we've, it's been like over a decade since our last here in the United States, our last financial crisis. You know, he, he talks about the further you get from the last crisis, the, the more instability that you, you have, like stability leads. Yeah, because people, people forget, they, they forget the need for financial regulation and they call for more and more deregulation. And then you have another, you know, boom and bust cycle. You have another, you know, artificial uh, bubble, uh, asset bubble, and people, everyone wants to start investing in it. And, you know, then it all happens all over again. So like I have tragedy. like, a, you know, a niece and nephew, you know, they're like 18 years old. They don't know anything. And they want to they want to invest in cryptocurrency. And you're like, OK. <laughs> yeah. So people have to live through a boom and bust cycle or one or two of them to realize that you need financial regulation and you can't let it get too out of control. But unfortunately, people easily forget that and they have to they unlearn it and they have to relearn it. And I think that that's true with um, a lot of things about economic policy over time. Mm -hmm. Rick, I actually want to go back for a second to something you were saying about talking to finance ministers or economists in, in poor countries and people just sort of not knowing which path to take because all that historical memory has been lost. I'm really interested in that. And I'm interested in, in again, how that happens. And I wonder if some of it is, I mean, obviously some of it is that if people go to school in the United States or in the UK, they, they learn, especially if they went to school in the last 30 years in these countries, they learn neoclassical economics. That's right. Not. That's um, right. But I'm also wondering if some of it is that many poor countries, I'm reading a book right now by, by Vijay Prashad. I don't know if you've ever read um, The Darker Nations. But... I'm, I'm, fam I'm familiar with his work. Yeah, he, his books are very interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I'm in the middle of it now, and it's about the, the third world. And one of the points that he makes again and again, is that leaders in the third world know the history, or they did at least in the 1970s and 80s, of the more developed countries and how they became developed. But every time they tried to implement these industrial policies, they were disciplined. And sometimes it was explicitly like they were coups or, you know, they were invaded. And so I'm wondering if some of this memory loss in the poorer countries is, is by necessity, because if you if you do remember and you try to implement the policies, you, you might die. Well, I think, you know, I think the, the history of what you're talking about is very uh, rich and complex. And I think that to, to some extent, uh, leaders, especially in the decolonization period in the 50s and 60s, where the former colonies were first getting their national independence, you had a lot of visionary leaders, Kenyatta and Krumah. There were so many great leaders in Africa who, who did have a vision for rapid economic development, and they did try to do various things. And some of them were more successful than others. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of countries did things wrong with like the proper sequencing. They were trying to do other things too quickly before they had done other things. There was like sequencing issues, but their vision was there. They, they were, there was a leadership that wanted a vision. They wanted to do what we call structural transformation. They wanted to diversify their economies over time. From, on, from only being based in primary agriculture and maybe extractives like oil and logging and fisheries or mining. And they wanted to diversify into manufacturing and manufacturing related services over time. And they had that vision. What you see today in recent years is the leadership in many developing countries doesn't have that vision. 
Now, there are some very interesting examples. I mean, there's some very interesting like anomalies to that. But generally, the, the leadership I see in most developing countries doesn't have that vision. They don't really see, say, we, we want to take our country from here to here over the next like 30 years. A lot of these countries have these little national development strategies written down on paper. In fact, having such a strategy has become more common in recent years, again, after a long time. The, the dynamism of those strategies and really a political consensus at home, a political vision uh, to get everybody on the same page saying, hey, we need to get from here to here over the next 30 years is really lacking in many countries. So you have a lot of, let's say, let's just say like uninspired, I don't want to say lazy, but just like leaderships with without real long-term developmental vision for their economies and those are the kinds of people who have seen seemingly got into power and are um you know th th it just seems to be a problem a, la a lack of leadership and vision for really doing structural transformation over time yeah so let's go back to to 08 i mentioned before that the imf is is distancing itself from its previous from its previous policies you don't you don't actually buy it. You, you don't actually think that the IMF and the World Bank, and I, I guess we can talk about the WTO as well, are all that different today than they were, say, 10 years ago. Why, why not? Well, I mean, because it, the, the, the essay that I wrote, I wanted to ask, I wanted to sort of stand back and ask a different question. I wanted to, to stand back from a lot of the commentary that's been emerging in recent years, like saying the Washington consensus is over because of this reason or that reason. I wanted to stand back and say, okay, let's look at it from like a development strategy perspective. A development strategy meaning how should a how what it what is it what is what is the advice if it's not the Washington consensus then what is the advice being given to small developing countries for their economic development strategy. So I show that um I take one I, I take about about 10 items one at a time and I say if it's really true that the Washington consensus is over then does that mean that the IMF and the World Bank are now saying this or now saying that and and so I run, th I run through a list of rhetorical questions. The answer to every one of them is no. So it's, it's sort of like the rhetorical questions, but I'm trying to like, by listing all of them together, I'm trying to paint a, a portrait of a set of things that would collectively constitute a development strategy for countries over time. So as I talked about earlier, the sort of premature trade liberalization, the IMF and the World Bank used to make their loans conditioned on countries lowering their trade barriers, as we talked about earlier. But then in the 1990s, those low tariffs became codified into international law as membership rules for the WTO, for the World Trade Organization. So countries went from being sort of forced to do that, lower their trade barriers as loan conditions from the IMF and the World Bank in the 1980s, to sort of voluntarily doing it themselves as a way to sign on and become a member of the WTO. They all felt like, oh, if we don't sign on and become a member, then we're going to be excluded. Nobody will want to trade with us. We'll scare away foreign investment. So all these developing countries felt compelled to sign on, and they sign on the bottom line of the membership rules, and they have to, on their own, they voluntarily agreed to keep their tariffs super low. That was a huge mistake, you know, from a developmental perspective. But I ask a series of questions like, has the IMF really changed its tune on what we would call premature trade liberalization. Is it now totally changing its tune and telling developing countries, oh, it's okay for you to raise your tariffs or keep your tariffs high, particularly while you're building up your domestic manufacturing sector? It's like, I don't think so. The World Bank and the IMF are not telling that to developing countries. So that element, that premature trade liberalization element of the Washington consensus appears to me to still be intact. They're not, I, I ask, are they going over to the WTO? Are the IMF and the World Bank going to the WTO and saying, hey, this membership rule that requires 
developing countries to have super low trade liberalization. Um, is, are, are you guys going to change that? Or, or, or are they saying, we think you should change that? Are they, is that what the IMF and the World Bank are saying to the WTO? No, that's not happening. So on that particular plank of the Washington consensus, I feel like they're, they're, it's, the Washington consensus is still prevailing. The logic of the Washington consensus is still prevailing. And then there's a whole host of industrial policies that begin that were outlawed in one way or another, restrictions or, uh, or, or of different kinds were included in the membership rules of the WTO. And so I asked, is the IMF and the World Bank saying, hey, that's a problem? If, we, if the IMF and the World Bank believe that countries should be able to do industrial policy now, are they saying, hey, WTO, you should change those restrictions on, on industrial policies and allow developing countries to use them? But they're not saying that. Same thing with a whole host of uh, beyond just the WTO membership rules. In the last couple of decades, there have been a whole host of these regional free trade agreements and bilateral free trade agreements between countries and so-called um, bilateral investment treaties, investment agreements between two countries. The UN calls them international investment agreements, IIAs. But these things are also chock full of even further restrictions on different types of industrial policies. So I ask, is the IMF and the World Bank telling developing countries that, hey, you should go renegotiate your free trade agreements and your bilateral investment treaties that you've signed with other countries because these things are restricting you too much from using industrial policy. It's like, that would be great if they were saying that, but they're not saying that. So I feel like those elements of the Washington consensus remain intact. And then on like another element of the Washington consensus is deregulating your restrictions and rules on what foreign investors can do or not do when they come into your country. In the old days, when countries were using regulations on FDI to help build up their own domestic companies and their own national development strategy, there used to be all kinds of limits and restrictions on what kind of foreign investment could come in. And if it was allowed to enter, uh, it had to like buy goods and services from local companies. It had to transfer, the, the foreign investor had to transfer technology to domestic firms. But all those kinds of restrictions started getting watered down under IMF and World Bank loan conditions in the 80s. But then again, they were codified in the WTO membership rules in the 1990s. And so you have, a, so again, all kinds of uh, ways that developing countries, not just developing countries, but the US, the Europeans, the UK, Japan, the Four Tigers, what they all had done was to greatly restrict and condition entry of foreign investors into their economies on the foreign investor doing these other things to help build up the domestic manufacturing sector of the developing country. And now those types of conditions and, 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 and rules or requirements for foreign investment have all, not all, but many have been stripped away. And so I asked, like, does the IMF and the World Bank now tell countries that it's okay that they, that, you know, that the WTO should change those restrictions and the, the IMF and the World Bank now think that it's good for developing countries to regulate foreign direct investment in these old ways. It's like, no, they're not saying that. I would love it if they were, but they're not. So on and on, you know, just going down the list on labor rights, you know, do they do the IMF and the World Bank suddenly think it's a good thing to strengthen labor rights and collective bargaining rights of labor unions and, and, to, and to be able to let them advocate for higher wages and better working conditions? It's like, no, you see the, uh, the uh, you know, the, la the labor community around the world is still very critical of the World Bank, their, their annual doing business report, that ranking, the doing business rankings. The, it's been a scandalous thing over the years. The, the labor communities around the world are really critical of the bank because the banks in this rankings, this very popular high profile annual rankings report called doing business by the World Bank, 
they give they give different scores for countries on how well they're doing on different free market reforms and other types of reforms. And they actually end up giving countries better scores if they lower wages and weaken labor rights. And so this has been really like a, a travesty, like a huge scandal and problem, like a political and, and, and public relations That's problem. Incredible. Yeah. And so my question is, are they, have they really stopped doing that? Like, I still hear the, the labor community complaining to them that they haven't really stopped. They still keep giving countries better scores uh, if, they, if they treat labor worse. But then also one issue I've really worked a lot on over the years is IMF monetary policy. The IMF has this tendency to, um, to have countries lower their inflation to very, very low levels. Now, inflation is a, is a terrible thing. It's, it's, a, it's a problematic thing, and it creates all kinds of problems, especially when it gets high. So, there's, so for 40 years, the free market people have made this really strong argument that inflation is bad, and so inflation should be kept at very low levels at all times. But there's also this developmental angle on inflation that if you if you if you the, the main way that they lower inflation is by raising interest rates. And what that does is that makes it harder for private companies and individual households to borrow money. Like if you're a company and you need to take out a business loan, you're not going to take it out if the interest rate is too high for you to pay back. Um, same, same thing with individual households, but also same thing for the government. If the government has to sell bonds to raise money for public spending, public investment in health or transportation or whatever, if they have to sell bonds and they have to pay a high interest rate to the bondholders when those bond issues come due later, that will also constrain what the government is capable of doing with public spending and public investment over time. So the IMF has definitely been successful at getting inflation down, but in a lot of ways, it's feared that the IMF has been too successful. It's gotten inflation down too low and kept it too low for too many countries for too many decades. And what that does is it blocks countries from scaling up the public investment that they need to do in the underlying infrastructure of their of their countries. So like you see like the health and education system is so dilapidated in so many low-income countries. That's because they've, they've suffered chronic underinvestment in the underlying infrastructure for the health and education systems for so many decades. This all gets back to the IMF monetary policy of keeping inflation super low. And so my question is, has the IMF stopped doing that? And, and obviously the answer is no. Again, that's another plank of the Washington consensus, which appears to be still quite intact. And then another big controversy related to monetary policy is the central bank. Should it be independent of the government? Should it be independent of the finance ministry or not? And so one of the things the IMF, one of the Washington consensus planks has been for the IMF to advocate to developing countries that they should separate their central bank from the rest of the government so that the parliament or the finance ministry or any of the government priorities for more spending doesn't influence what the central bank policy is. And so th this whole idea was you make an independent central bank, they call it central bank independent CBI. And it's been a classic plank. And the reasoning is that we want to make the people who are at the central bank um, be technocrats who are pulling the levers and making the decisions about what's best for the economy. And they're not being influenced by elections or party politics or any of these corrupt governments in developing countries. They're not just like turning on the spigot and printing money before an election or something to help the political party in power. So the whole idea was to separate the central bank from the politics of the country. Or another way of looking at it is to separate the central bank decisions from popular opinion and what social movements and people are calling for through parliamentary elections and so forth for spending increases. So it's to separate it from that too. Um, but the thing is that over the decades, we've seen the central banks that are supposedly independent have never really gotten to be purely autonomous or independent sitting in a little bubble somewhere. They've became increasingly influenced by the financial sector. 
And so, especially as these developing countries are also being pressed to liberalize and deregulate their financial sectors. So as they open up to global finance and global capital flows much more, the question is, is like, you know, the tail wagging the dog, who's, who's influencing who? When countries are opening themselves up to global capital flows, they're also making themselves susceptible to rapid inflows and rapid outflows of investment capital. And both can be quite stabilizing, especially 